citizen, the connection, chapter 13. Granny Berger died the week before Mother's Day after a long battle with lung cancer. Granny was devastated, and telling Vera had to be done gently. Vera was close with Granny Berger and had recently bought her grandmother a necklace for Mother's Day. No one could find Bobby for a while. When he finally called back, Bobby told Granny to wait till his shift was over. Granny slammed the phone onto the wall and got Tracy. By this time, Vera was an administrator at the hospital. They called Beverly, who was a nurse, and a good friend of Vera's. Her shift was almost over, so Tracy asked Beverly to go to Vera's desk before he called. Beverly collected the other nurses on the floor and headed for Vera while Tracy dialed. Hey, Mom, Tracy said. How are you doing? Hey, Trace, and Vera was surprised he had called her at work. Is Beverly at your desk yet? Tracy asked. Vera was distracted, but said, Yeah, she just got here. And Vera saw Beverly's face and screamed, and Tracy heard his mother sob. Tracy listened as Beverly hung the phone up for her, but knew his mother was surrounded with comfort. The Monday after Mother's Day, they buried Granny Berger in the necklace Vera had gotten her. Then... The mantle of matriarch fell on Granny with weight. Granny became unrecognizably serious, and her brother got more depressed. He lived in the area and was an alcoholic loner. His depression became chronic after his mother died. By October, he succeeded in drinking himself to death, and Granny stood resolute as the only one left of her family. Moody also became uncommonly quiet after Granny Berger's funeral. His wife's mother recognized what Moody did by stepping up to raise Ginny and Vera. If Granny had agreed to move to the farm, their lives would have been very different. At the time, Granny Berger was all for it. She dreamed with Moody about sitting on the porch as they sipped moonshine, but her daughter liked to bowl and hang out with her girlfriends too much. So, even though they didn't win, Moody had a confidant in his mother-in-law. Granny Berger was always in his corner and helped fend Granny off. Now that she was gone, Moody was a lone pilgrim where his wife was concerned. For Tracy, the summer barely registered, and he became serious as well. He quit band to focus on his college prep classes. He kept up with his kung fu, but Tracy's childhood was over. Then, even though his junior year started slowly, it gathered steam with dizzying speed. By the following Mother's Day, Tracy was off to D.C. in a professional capacity. He had entered a contest to attend the Washington Congressional Seminar, sponsored by Union Carbide. The black senior girls had goaded Tracy on because they didn't want to miss representation at a national level. You're the only black person entering this contest from our school, the girls explained, and we're going to help you win. The young black women conspired to collectively help Tracy write his essay. 
The teachers who graded it were also co-conspirators, but not just because of Tracy. Some of Tracy's teachers taught Vera and Ginny. Back in the day, Vera was beloved almost as much as Ginny was infamous. When Tracy began high school, his teachers asked him whose he was at point-blank range. When Tracy asked Granny and Moody about this, he got the whole story. Vera and Ginny were similar to Tracy and Freddie in terms of temperament and scholastic interests. Tracy was a good student who kept his head down, and Freddie went to school to meet girls. Likewise, Vera's teachers loved her, while it was difficult to keep Ginny out of jail. The disparity was partly due to the sisters' personalities, but some had to do with their appearance. Vera's was soft, with hazel eyes that, along with her sexy voice, got things done more easily with sugar. In contrast, Ginny's feisty green eyes snapped easily, but her biggest problem was that she looked white. Her hair was naturally blonde, and Ginny's skin tone was lighter than some of the clansmen's daughters in her class. The sisters hit high school in the early 1960s. From the get-go, Ginny was known as Queen Bee. Sting first, ask questions later. She had a short wick, a sharp wit, and the physical power to back it up. Early on in the girls' high school career, it was a particularly hot summer. At the time, Glasgow, West Virginia, was a known home to the clan and had a whites-only pool. So Ginny got a bee in her bonnet, how to shut it down. She stirred up her hive of colored accomplices, and they climbed into Granny's massively white impala to head to Glasgow. Now, Bootsy, Ginny instructed, you stay here and keep the car running. The girls had their swimsuits on, but they left their towels in the car. A tiny girl sat at the admission desk to the pool, who looked like she should be selling cookies. Silently, Ginny's group bum-rushed the girl, ran directly to the pool and jumped in, and splashed around yelling and laughing. Just as fast, every white body jumped out of the pool in disgust. They screamed the N-word and ran for their mommies. With the pool cleared, Ginny's gang hopped out, ran back past the bewildered clerk, hopped into the waiting impala, and sped off in a signature cloud of dust. Afterward, the pool was drained and scrubbed with bleach. That took three weeks, so the pool was condemned for the rest of the summer. The only option was for the residents of Glasgow to go to one of the integrated pools outside of town. They weren't about to do that, so Ginny's mission was accomplished. But perhaps Ginny's greatest work was at a football game. She was a senior and was going out with Squeaky, her first future ex-husband, who was the star quarterback. During a particular game, a white girl sat at the top of the bleachers with her redneck friends. She wasn't as pleased with the notoriety of the school's winning team of black athletes. Ginny sat in front by the flagpole with the other girlfriends of the players. As Ginny and her gang cheered their men on, 
the white girl began taunting Queen Bee. Hey, Jenny, she said between gum pops, why don't you come on up here? Jenny ignored her, but everyone heard. I got a bet going on up here, she explained. Come on up so we can settle it. Then Squeaky came in from the field, and Jenny leaned down to him. Keep an eye out, Jenny instructed. There might be some shit. And Jenny faced the top of the bleachers. Word went through the team as Jenny stood, and Vera got ready. What do you want? We need you to come on up and settle something for us, the white girl said, and her gang sniggered. All eyes were on Jinny as she climbed to the top of the bleachers. The game continued, but the kids watched the show playing out beside them. When Jinny reached the top, the white girl took off her sandal, put her foot in Jinny's face, and smirked. The only thing darker on me than you is the bottom of my foot, she said, alluding to the dirt collected from her open sandals. Jinny snatched that foot. She dragged it from the top of the bleachers to the bottom and didn't care about the screaming body attached to it. When Jinny reached the bottom, the football team rallied and formed a circle around her. Then Jinny and Vera commenced to giving that girl a seven sons a skiva whoopin', and ripped clothes flew everywhere. The football team surrounded the flagpole until the wrath of Queen Bee was satisfied. But it wasn't long before the white girl was strung to the flagpole by the back of her bra and hoisted up for all to see. Ironically, years later after Jinny and Squeaky married, had three lovely girls, and were divorced, Jinny tried to kill the very same quarterback. Granny Berger was knitting in the living room. She had one eye on the TV and the other on the large picture window. Squeaky got drunk and decided to test the restraining order. It was dark outside, but Granny Berger saw him working his way up the driveway. Jinny was in her bedroom. Jenny, Granny Berger said. Squeaky's on his way up here. Okay, Grandmama, Jenny said. Jenny, he's getting closer. I know, Grandmama. And Granny Berger heard a drawer open in the bedroom. Jenny, Granny Berger asked. Yes, Grandmama, Jenny answered. Squeaky's picking up a lawn chair and staggering toward the plate glass window. There was no answer. About the time Squeaky managed to lift the lawn chair toward the window, Jinny appeared with her pearl-handled revolver. She jumped into the living room, squatted into position, and fired off a round of shots through the plate glass. Then she ran to the front door, opened it, squatted, and fired off another round in every direction before she yelled. "'Come on, Grandmama,' Jinny said. "'Help me look for the body,' so he can drag it into the house. But Granny Berger didn't move from her chair. Instead, she put her knitting down and looked through the broken window at Jinny running around the yard in a panic. It's self-defense if we drag him back into the house, Jinny panted. She shot one more round down the driveway, but Squeaky was long gone. Only a tossed lawn chair, 
murdered plate-glass window, and disappointed Queen Bee were left. Hello everyone, Tracy here. I hope you're enjoying my story. We'll let you know how to support this podcast later. But for now, the best thing you can do is follow us and share it with your friends and family. So if you like what you're hearing, please help us out by telling people about it. And thanks again. By the time Tracy reached high school... The only thing his teachers wanted to know was which one of the girls was Tracy's mother. An audible sigh of relief was released when it was Vera. The upshot was the same teachers graded Tracy's essay for the Union Carbide Contest, which helped Tracy become one of seven students to attend the seminar from West Virginia. The week-long seminar was at Marymount College. Tracy expected the seminar to be a kind of vacation, and thought he would finally be able to go into the buildings he drove by so many times as a child. Then Tracy planned to visit Vera for Mother's Day. But the experience was eye-opening, and the world became a much bigger place for Tracy. This was the first time he met such a wide variety of academically alert students his age, which was thrilling and shocking. As one of a handful of black students, Tracy saw racism plainly visible. He didn't expect this in such an educated group, and didn't realize there could be smart bigotry. On the bright side, Tracy's newly formed friends were more broad-minded, and the revelations cut both ways. Tracy's roommate was named Dean, who was from North Carolina. He was the first white person Tracy had ever shared a room with. From Tracy's vantage point, and hearing Granny talk about cleaning white folks' houses, his assumption was that white people were dirty. Tracy brought shoes for the shower because, as every black woman who ever cleaned a white bathroom knew, all white folks had athlete's foot. As it turned out, Dean was the farthest thing from dirty. Tracy also thought he was handsome, and impeccably tidy, and nobly polite. On the other hand, when an aspiring girlfriend wannabe showed up, she proved Granny's point. The girl who thought Dean was cute was definitely from the bigotry camp. She also wore unkempt clothes, and her hair was a nest, perhaps of several small animal species. When she bounced in, Tracy and Dean were studying in their room. She sat close to Dean on his bed and said hi. Surprised, Dean said hi back, as southern gentlemen do. Then the girl looked at Tracy and back at Dean. Does he have to be here? She said, rolling her eyes toward Tracy. This is his room, Dean answered. Oh and the girl was confused for a moment. "'Is that okay with you?' "'Why, wouldn't it be?' Dean answered. Tracy sat on his bed watching them talk about him. "'Well,' and the girl sounded obvious, "'because he's—' "'Because he's what?' 
Jean pressed to make her say it, but she bounced up and looked into one of the closets instead. She picked up a bottle of shampoo. This is nice, she said. Whose is this? Mine, Tracy said, which startled her. Why are you using our shampoo? the girl asked. Our shampoo? Tracy asked. Dean looked at Tracy and tried not to laugh. Then the girl ran out of the room before Dean and Tracy fell apart from the ludicrous exchange. Hmm. I kind of want to sterilize the room now, Tracy said, which made them laugh harder. I guess I should see how she's doing, Dean said and left. As Tracy placed his shampoo back on the shelf, he thought of Granny. He kept silent and let the girl hang herself on her own words, just like Granny would have done. Tracy also knew he had a good friend, and Dean and Tracy remained friends for years after. A few days later, Tracy met a more pivotal person in his life. On Thursday, the students went to Capitol Hill to spend the morning with their respective senators. Tracy's was the longest-serving congressman at the time, the Honorable Robert Byrd of West Virginia. The senator was expressly interested in shaking Tracy's hand, and both were proud. When Mr. Byrd started out, he was a champion for the Klan. Over the years, he did a 180, as did his disposition. Even after decades in Congress, the senator became younger, lighter, and acted like a kid in an old suit. Senator Byrd was also a cut-up. On his tour, he rode the kids on the little train under the Capitol until his secretary had to come find him. "'Are you doing this again?' she yelled with a twang. "'Get on upstairs now!' she scolded. "'Yes, ma'am,' the senator answered, and the kids laughed. That afternoon, the group watched Congress from the gallery to prepare for their mock Congress on Saturday. Then the long, hot political day was done. The buses headed across Memorial Bridge to Marymount at sunset. About the time they rounded the Lincoln Memorial, Candy Girl by New Edition came on the radio. Immediately, an effervescent, light-skinned young man stood up, and proceeded to dance down the center aisle. He was Tracy's height with a big afro and a shocking sense of himself. He began to strip, which made the bus driver notice the commotion and turn the music up. Working the crowd, the skilled performer knew all the words and took his time throwing his coat, tie, and eventually his starched shirt into the crowd. It was as if a bottle of pink champagne was popped, and the bus became a bubbly, cool mass of laughter and refreshment. Tracy was more than captivated, and secretly observed the young man, who kept an eye on Tracy. The introduction happened during dinner. "'My name is Justin,' and he held out his hand, and Tracy shook it. Without hesitation, Justin pulled a chair up and sat next to Tracy." "'Today was pretty cool, don't you think?' Justin said, not allowing an answer. "'I thought the Congress was a little sluggish. They could have cut some time with a properly placed objection. But all in all, I think it was a good day. 
and he took a small bite of his burger. At least we got the bill passed, and he swallowed and hit Tracy's arm with his elbow. Hey, I lost my mother's camera up on the hill today. She'll kill me if I don't bring it back. And Justin turned to Tracy. You want to help me look for it tomorrow? It's our free day. Tracy wasn't sure if this was a rhetorical question, but he nodded in the affirmative. The next day after breakfast, Justin and his groupies headed for Capitol Hill. They retrieved Justin's camera, and with nothing better to do, they went for lunch in Georgetown. Justin was uncharacteristically low-key, but that was because he was preparing. That evening was the culmination of the seminar. When he introduced his bill, Justin's performance was spectacular. I know you guys recognize me, Justin said, and spit out a little Bobby Brown from Candy Girl. Suddenly, the student congress tasted pink champagne and broke into applause. Then, Justin's command of the room shocked everyone. He cut the conservative camps off at every turn, and their points fell to Justin's procedural mastery. This led to a heated debate with the judge from Union Carbide. A ten-minute recess was called for the judges to discuss the merits of Justin's unorthodox use of Robert's rules. When the Congress reconvened, Justin won the night, and the next day the seminarians headed home. Justin caught up with Tracy to exchange numbers and invited Tracy to come to his home in Connecticut. Tracy agreed, but that wasn't to be until the following summer. When Tracy returned to school, he was a hero to the senior girls. But his accomplishment was short-lived, because a rumor surfaced Tracy was getting a D in English. The next morning, Granny sat outside the principal's office. The small, skinny, white principal had been Vera's history teacher back in the day. Ginny went with Granny, in case there was some shit. At 10 a.m., Tracy was called to the principal's office over the PA system. The women entered the office and sat in front of the principal's desk, and Tracy took a seat along the wall behind them. Once the principal hung up, he started in. "'Well, hello, Miss Mud,' he said, referring to Granny's skin color. Granny lunged across the desk, but Ginny caught her by the waist. "'You know my name,' Granny snarled. Ginny looked at the principal, and her green eyes snapped like a welding torch. "'You remember me, too,' Ginny said quietly and stared at the pasty little man who was in a closed room protected only by a desk. I ought to let her go. Please, the principal said warily, and gestured kindly for the ladies to sit. Granny thought of Tracy sitting behind her and relented. Ginny let go of her mother's waist, and they sat down. It seems this was a misunderstanding. The principal continued. You think? Ginny said. It seems Tracy's English teacher didn't tell him about the test his class was given while he was at the seminar, the principal said. Hmm. Seems the teacher also failed to mention the test was 50% of his grade, 
Granny barked. And that I was excused from all of my classes for the seminar, Tracy stated. Which means he should be able to take the test, Jenny concluded. The room fell quiet as the racism of generations sat there, from Tracy to Vera and Jenny to Granny and Granny Berger, even from the time in elementary school when Tracy asked Granny Berger about her family history for an assignment. Back then, his great-grandmother slapped him before she knocked him down and smothered little Tracy with a pillow. "'Don't you ever mention Alabama again!' Granny Berger shouted. "'Ever!' Three generations of struggle and injustice sat and looked at the skinny white man behind the desk. Mentally, Tracy drafted a letter to his good friend Robert Byrd, who told Tracy he could call his office at any time. In her mind, Ginny sized up the principal's weight and figured she could get him halfway up the flagpole if she used his belt. Well, the principal finally said, this does seem to be a misunderstanding. And the women let him finish. And seeing as Tracy represented the state and this school so admirably with Union Carbide, I will see to it he can take his test so this can be straightened out. Huh, Granny said. Without so much as a goodbye, Granny got up and Ginny followed her out with Tracy. He took his test, received an A in English, and Tracy's junior year was done. Then things got complicated, as Tracy's horizons were both broadened and clouded until he graduated high school, when God would finally launch Tracy into this world. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you would like to purchase the book, Dual Citizen, it is available on Amazon. Be sure to search for Dual Citizen, The Connection. All three books, The Connection, The Training, and The Arrival, are available in print as well as on Kindle. Dual Citizen, The Connection, is also available on Audible. So, if you would like to skip ahead and see how everything turns out, feel free. But don't tell your friends the ending. Thanks again, and we hope everyone will find their place at the table.